welcome to Possibilities Podcast, where we will be in conversation with ideas, people, and practices that stretch our sense of what is possible, have made me possible, and create possibilities for all of us. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. This week, we have Leslie Lee Cam as our guest. Um, if you don't know Leslie, Leslie's a community elder. She's been an out dyke and a community activist since 1976. Leslie sits on the Senior Pride Network Advisory Committee, the Patient Caregiver Advisory Table, and Health Quality Ontario for the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care, the Liaison Committee for the Ministry of Senior Affairs, and a volunteer trainer for the 519 Older Adult Education Program. In June 2017, Leslie participated in the Historic Buddies Youth Elder Project and organized the very first Pride Toronto Seniors LGBTQI2S social intergenerational event. Leslie enjoys a cold beverage and a hot lime anytime. She's just a real joy to talk to. She has a commitment to keep intergenerational connections alive. And her passion and her deep desire to connect through storytelling is really apparent in this interview and always. There is so much we could all learn from Leslie's tenacious spirit. We did this interview in April. Um, Leslie mentions her boyfriend, Alf, in the first part of the interview. Alf sadly passed away in early June. He loved dancing and being gay. Alf's dream was to have a relationship after coming out at the age of 80, and he was a strong advocate for queer senior care. We dedicate this episode to Alf. Okay, let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Leslie Lee Cam. Well, thank you so much. I'm so excited and so grateful that you made the time, that you learned Zoom, that you, uh, you know, <laughs> I have no really idea. So I'm, I'm a virgin to Zoom. Oh, <laughs> this is so, this so is glad my, to share this special moment with you. I'm so excited. This, yes, this is my first official Zoom call. Wow, wow, what a privilege. Uh, <laughs> I'm so excited. Um, about before we start, I wanted to. How are you doing in this time? How are you holding up? Um. Well, it's been rough because I I was talking to my friend Julie last night. She's the one who was giving me the iPad and helped me with the Zoom. And I have uh, a boyfriend. I call him my boyfriend. I, when so you know I identify as a queer dyke. Yeah. So, and I do these workshops. Mm. So I, I did a workshop and I'm, you know, said, this is how I identify and blah, blah, blah. And then I talk about my boyfriend who is 92 and is living at Fudger House. Hot. And he came out at the age of 80. So a woman puts her hand up and she says, well, you can't be a queer dyke if you have a boyfriend. You should identify as pan. So I said, it's a joke. Like he's my boyfriend because he's he's now ninety two, right? And he's he's a, an only child. His parents are dead. He has no living family. Mm. So I call him my boyfriend. That's and I, I met him, um, his name is Alf Roberts. Hi, Alf. 
and he is in the 519 poster celebrating queer seniors. Mm. And I'm sitting next to him on the couch. And that's when I met him, I guess about six or seven years ago now. Mm. So I've been quite concerned because I try to pop in to see him at least twice a month. I send him a card in the mail. So he has something to look forward to. He has a sweet tooth, so I buy him chocolates. I've been buying his shirts for him because he and I are both into plaid. Nice. So it's, and I have, I tried calling um, Fudger House yesterday, but nobody's picking up. So I, I don't know how else to get in touch with him. I've emailed one of my buddies, uh, um, a queer trinity man who works there, but I guess they're so busy that they don't have the time to be looking at emails because you know what's happening. It, it's really hitting long-term care homes. Right, right. So part of the rant in my email that Kumari saw that I sent to Pride is that queer seniors are already isolated. Right. We are already afraid. And when you end up, I don't know, have you ever been inside a long-term care home? I, I personally have not, but Kumari has, yeah. Yeah, then which one have you been to, Kumari? You know what, I don't remember the name, um, but it was in North York. My grandmother was in a, a, a long-term care home and lived there for maybe five or six years. Mm. I mean, I guess I went there one time when I was doing a film, uh, a film uh, like working on a film set, and they were filming inside a long-term care home. Yeah. I don't know anyone who's lived there. So most of them are older mm -hmm. and not very pleasant. Okay. So Fudger is one of the oldest ones in terms of the 10 city homes. Mm. Rakai is a private one. The The Rakai location on Wellesley at Sherbourne is much nicer mm. compared to Fudger. Mm. And because the staff is so busy, especially with queer seniors. So Fudger and Rakai are the two homes with the most queer seniors Okay. that we are aware of. And when I say we, I mean in terms of the work that I do and working with the Senior Pride Network. Yeah. And the 10 city homes, the 10 long-term city homes, are all mandated to be queer inclusive. Right. And they're not because nobody is holding them accountable. Right. So when you ask me how am I feeling with what's going on and I keep hearing the impact that the virus is having on long-term care homes yeah. and so many seniors are dying. Yeah. My concern is how many of those seniors are queer. And what's happening to the queer seniors who are in those homes, who are not being recognized, who are afraid and lonely, and who are now even more invisible and have no contact. You see pictures on uh, CP24 of families who are going to the homes and waving to people, you know, in the windows. And I, every time I see that, I think of Alf. Because who is going to be waving to Alf? Who is going to be reaching out to Alf? Alf's only connections to the queer world are myself 
and two of the volunteers mm. who have become quite close to him. And now we can't go in when nobody's allowed into the homes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you were talking before, when we were talking before, you were also mentioning like a lot of queer seniors have been going back into the closet. There's been high rates of suicide among queer seniors even before the crisis hit. Yeah. Uh, all this, on, I mean, and isolation that is that exists already, and then now we're in extra isolation already. What do you think queer seniors need from the rest of us? From the, from the well, that's something that I mentioned in my email to Pride, mm. is that we have to make a more concerted effort when this is over. Mm. That Pride isn't just having fun during June and everything culminating in a big party on the, the Pride weekend. Right. We need we need to do programming similar to what uh, Youth Elders Project is doing. Yeah. But all those queer youth groups out there, like Planned Parenthood, runs a lot of queer youth groups. Yeah. Um, Egal does also. Right. And there are a bunch of them in Scarborough and some out in Etobicoke. Mm-hmm. So what I suggested to the woman at Pride is that those groups get together with queer seniors programming uh-huh. and start building bridges yeah. because it, it just made me realize that I was focused on ALF and doing the queer social event. But now when you see how many seniors are dying, yeah. do we want to have our queer seniors, you know, be even more isolated and more lonely? Right. And one of the things that uh, one of the queer elders has said, his line was, one day if you're lucky, you too will be a queer senior. So I would like to see queer youth, all queer youth, wake up and realize you could end up in one of these places. Yeah. And how are you going to change the care that queer seniors receive? You know, how do you want to be treated when you get down the road? And really, all of us are benefiting from your work and your life experience. We're all kind of here, standing on your shoulders, and we're not exactly. Down, so. Yeah, it's queer seniors who have paved the way. Yeah, for all the freedoms. Absolutely. And I mean, and I hear I've heard some uh, white, usually white, gay, older men who say, oh, you have it so lucky, you queer youth have it so lucky. It's easier to come out these days, mm-hmm. but once you come out, you're stuck. Right. Because most of my queer younger friends are working two, three, and four jobs. Yeah. Nobody can afford to own a home. Mm-hmm. People are having to share sometimes in very unsafe circumstances. Yeah. They've been disowned by their families. I, I don't know of any queer youth that I have met over the past four years who are actually from Toronto. They've all come to Toronto seeking safety and shelter yep. because of the violence they've experienced in their lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And queer youth of color, queer trans youth of color, you know, indigenous two-spirit youth. So we, we need to start working together even more once this is over. And Pride has to be... When I started participating in Pride, 1976 was when Pride started in Toronto. In Toronto. Yeah. In Toronto. 
Mm-hmm. And we were under trees in front of Queensburg. Mm. Now Pride has become this big commercial event. Yeah. And the community piece of it has been totally lost. Yeah. And that's what we need. If anything, this virus teaches us is that we have to go back to our roots of supporting each other all of our communities because the queer it's no one queer community no when i hear that it's usually a white queer person talking when they say the queer community right because we know being queer and of color we have many communities and that's what I would like to see moving forward. What really has been impacting me is hearing about the deaths, the number of deaths. Every time you hear that, it's not, it's not a number, it's a person. Yeah. You know, and Eileen Davila is the only one who I hear every time she's questioned, well, can you tell us more about the deaths? And, she said, and she's the only one who's been saying, we're talking about people. Right. And I'm not at liberty to start talking about people's lives. When you hear someone, I don't know if you've been watching the updates on CP24, 345. Not every day. Yeah. Yeah. And the reporters are just hungry for this kind of information. Yeah. yeah. Without, Without talking about, you know, the impact on the lives of these people. And what I've noticed is that the Minister of Seniors Affairs has not spoken once. Mm. Nobody from the Ministry of Seniors Affairs and Disabilities has spoken once. I want to know, I mean, you know, you've also lived through the AIDS crisis. and, Mm. uh, And now this is happening. How are you dealing with the grief? How are you sitting with the grief? Um, the AIDS crisis was heard. Seven of my young gay male friends died in the space of three months. And I thought that was hard, but this is harder because back then we were able to hold them and be with them and care for them. And we came up with support plans and support circles Mm -hmm. so they wouldn't be alone. And now we don't have that opportunity. Yeah. And AIDS wasn't contagious. This is contagious. Yeah. So it's put another level of further isolation in place. Absolutely. Because people who need that kind of caring and compassion are not able to get it. Yeah. I can't even begin to imagine. I was thinking, I was looking at some of the pictures that I have um, online from the party at Rakai. Yeah. And seeing all those queer seniors having such a great time and wondering now, what's happening to them? You know, nobody to visit. Nobody can go and ask them because they were so isolated to begin with and hiding. Yeah. But something else that happened, another rant that I had yesterday. Um, I don't know if you remember, I told you that I work with a 519 as a volunteer trainer. Yeah. And my main piece of work has been doing training with VHA, Visiting Homemakers Association. Right. So they just put out their annual report online. Mm -hmm. 
and they interviewed me to ask me about the work that I've been doing with them. I also sit on their LGBTQ working group. Right. And I was sitting on their client care advisory council. Yeah. So they were interviewing me about, you know, how I felt doing that work and what did I think about VHA. And at the very beginning of the interview, I said, this is how I identify. She didn't even do any research like you did. She knew she was going to interview me. She knew three weeks ahead of time. Mm. She did no research. Mm. And I said, I, I actually, um, that day, I was going to do um, a presentation at Ryerson. Right. So I was dressed in my, all my par queer paraphernalia. I was wearing my dyke ring. And I said, this is how I identify. I'm a world majority, Carib, Brown, Callaloo, Indo-Chinese, queer dyke. Mm-hmm. And in the article, she writes, and I had the privilege to interview Leslie Leekem, a gay woman. She didn't even listen to that. Oh my God. Where in that did you hear gay woman? Oh God. So I wrote, they sent me a copy of the online article and my picture. And so it's already gone out. And I had asked for them to show me the content for me to review it because I want to know what you're putting out there about me. Right. They didn't send it to me first for approval. So I wrote back to them and I said, you know, I appreciate the fact that you highlighted my work and I respect the work that VHA is doing. But this woman who interviewed me is showing her homophobia and lesbophobia. And she's using journalistic license to make me sound better socially by describing me as a gay woman. Right. I have never identified as a gay woman in my life. That word gay is not in my vocabulary. Right. So good for them. The One of the VPs wrote back right away and apologized. Okay. And said they're going to make the changes online immediately. And I said, well, I would like to see the changes. Right. And she also identified me as being the lead trainer from the 519. I also had to correct that. Because in working with a 519, I don't want it out there that I'm any lead trainer. You know, I'm a volunteer. I have, I have problems with some of the politics of the 519. Right, right. So, yes, I'm happy. I'm doing a niche piece of work with VHA as a queer dyke elder. That is my role. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like she was asking you, but she wasn't hearing you. She wasn't actually... <laughs> taking in what you were actually telling her. No, because she, yeah. no, I was just going to say she was filtering it yeah. through her straight brain in terms of what would be most socially acceptable yeah. to that audience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, even in that story, and I think in what I've, you know, um, seen in you is that you're always like someone, you're someone who shows up and you're someone who, who makes their voice heard. And I, you know, you're an elder, but you show, I, you've shown up to many younger folks events, events that are geared towards younger folks, which is <laughs> awesome. No, I don't say that. I, I was just really heartening to see 
because you know, I don't know if young folks are putting in the kind of effort to think about how to make it accessible, but it's so awesome to see you there. And then, you know, you, you know, even in like the nineties when there was like this big festival in Toronto called Desh Pradesh, uh, which was great in some ways, but it was like very limited in its idea of uh, what South Asian diaspora meant. Uh, and they discriminated against folks who were Indo-Caribbean uh, like you. Mm, big you know? time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yet you showed up and you refused to be kept on the sidelines. Which, and you know, also as you, and you were, we were talking about this before, but you stood up to pride one year and told them that more programming for dogs than seniors, which <laughs> that sounds like pride. That sounds like pride Toronto. But that a little is- bit of, A little bit of shame. Yeah, a little bit of shade goes shade along. That's what they understand. So you got to tell them how they hear. Well, you see, that's and that's what pisses me off. I don't want to stoop to that level, but right. sometimes that's the only way change can happen. Yeah, but I want to know what, what what's what's you know even when like events <laughs> are not, they're not they're not building it. Uh, or spaces that are not building it with you in mind. You show up and you get your voice heard, and I want to know what keeps you going. What keeps you showing up and making, because it's necessary, your voice is so necessary. What keeps you going? What keeps me going is how I was treated when I came out. Mm. And I don't want that to happen to queer young people of color. Mm-hmm. So and under the, in terms of using the word queer, I'm also including trans people, mm-hmm. even though not all trans people are queer. So I don't want it to sound like I'm excluding anybody when I say queer. Okay. Um, when I came out the first night, I actually, I went, I went to York University yeah. for four years. And while I was there, I was in a very clandestine relationship with a Trini woman of color. Mm-hmm. And for three years, we were, you know, under the radar. And we never used the word lesbian because back then, this was in 1973 to 1976. Right. We didn't, there was nothing on, it was encyclopedias. You had to go to the library. Yeah. So we were found out because her sister came home one day and found us kissing. Mm. So she was immediately shipped back to Trinidad. She was going to Rice and then I was going to York. she was shipped back to Trinidad and then I realized before she went to Trinidad I asked her could she come and see me at this point I was working at Manulife Insurance and she came to see me and she brought her brother with her well she didn't bring him they wouldn't let her see me unless she was escorted by a family member so we met in the lobby at um, Manulife Insurance there on Bloor Street. Right. The building is still there. And I said to her, I'm sorry that this has happened to us. She's Catholic. She's a very staunch Catholic. Yeah. And I am a Catholic in recovery because I was in a convent for five years and the nuns treated me like crap. Yeah. So anyway, long story short, I said to her, it breaks my heart that your family has torn us apart. But what it made me realize was that I like women. Mm-hmm. And I went back to York to the Homophile Association. Right. So that's the word that was being used back then, homophile. 
and they got put me in touch with somebody who was part of loot and i met that woman at uh wellesley subway and we walked over to loot loot is and a lesbian organization of toronto lesbian organization of toronto 342 jarvis the house is still there mm. And I said, well, what am I going to expect? Am I going to see lesbians? And she said, yeah, yeah, you'll see lesbians. And when I had spoken to her on the phone, I said, well, what should I wear? Because I had no clue what, yeah. what to wear. Yeah. And she says, well, wear whatever you feel comfortable in. So I was, it was summertime. I was wearing jeans and a T-shirt and got there. And we walked into this house. It was very dark. And there were people standing around and I said to her, so where are the lesbians? And she said, oh, these are all lesbians. And I said, but they all look like men. Okay. The way they were dressed and they, how their head, like I grew up with three brothers. So I know what men look like, how they dress. Right. So I said, but so how, how come they all look like men? And she says, well, I just want to let you know that you have to choose how you're going to be. I said, well, I don't understand. She says, well, you have to choose whether you're going to be butch or femme or a separatist. Oh. And I said, a separatist? You mean like from Quebec? Because that was when all the separatism stuff was happening, right? Yeah. <laughs> I had no clue what a separatist to be in this lesbian. We're like, what are they doing here at Loot? <laughs> And she said, no, separatists, separatists are women who don't like men and who stay away. They separate themselves from men. I said, but they look more like men than <laughs> the way they dress. So here I was in a room full of butch separatist women. It was kind of strange. And everybody was white. Right. So that's what I came out to. And then that same evening, she took me to another group called CHAT. Okay. The Community Homophile Association of Toronto. Okay. And we were going to a coffee house. I had no, I didn't know what a coffee house was, but that's what they called it. It was a drop-in, what we call a drop-in now. Mm -hmm. So I get there and it's the same thing again. Everybody's white. Mm. and I'm looking around for the lesbians but by now I know there were some lesbians there because of how they were dressed right even though they looked like men and then I went to the the bathroom and when I was at the sink washing my hands there was a woman there who looked at me and she said I guess you're feeling out of place so I'm thinking to myself oh she knows this is my first time so I said I said you can tell this is my first time here and she says, no, because you're black, you won't fit in. And that was the turning moment for me. Right. So right away I said, well, I don't identify as black. I identify as brown. Because I knew I was brown from the age of six. Right. And mixed race. I mean, in Trinidad, you would know your mix. You yeah, know? because you had to fill out these forms in Trinidad. Right. And you had to check off the boxes, and my father checked off brown, and then he wrote mix. So from the age of six, I knew my identity. 
So here's this woman telling me, I'm poor you, you're black, you're not going to fit in. I said, well, no, I'm not black, I'm brown. She says, oh, no, no, don't, you're in denial, you're black, you know. <laughs> well, back, back then, back then, though, man, in, when I came here in 1970, if you were not white, you were black. Right. Right. So when I went when I went to high school in 1970, there were four of us who were not white: Chinese, uh, South Asian, myself, and this guy, a brown guy from um, I forget the name of the country he was from. It's near to Malta, from Malta. Okay. Yeah. So this is what I grew up. You know, I was 16 when I came here. So when when I went out for my first time into the gay and lesbian community, this is what I was facing. Mm -hmm. And it kept happening. And I thought, no, I'm joining Loot. I became a peer counselor on the phone lines because I did not want another brown woman or black woman to go through what I went through. Mm. That's why I do this work. That's lovely. That's, that's beautiful. And as I've gotten older, I see the same things happening over and over to queer youth of color, how they're treated. And I see how queer seniors now, unfortunately, I don't see too many queer seniors of color who are in long-term care homes who I would know that they're queer Mm. because we're hiding. Mm -hmm. And when I talked about the Ministry of um, Seniors Affairs not making an appearance at any of these, uh, you know, updates you see on TV, I sit on the on the provincial Ontario Provincial Seniors Committee mm-hmm. for the Ministry of Seniors Affairs and Disabilities, okay. and there's six day seniors groups across the province who are represented at this liaison committee. Mm. And I'm the only queer voice. Unreal. Yeah. So, and I, I challenge them and I say to them, in every single one of your groups, there are queer seniors. What are you doing to take care of us? What does it and feel like to be like the first or the only one in the room so often? Well, I don't know if you've heard my phrase, the reason. Tell in us. The- I actually don't know what it is, but I want I want our audience to hear it. Tell me. I'm the raisin in the rice pudding of life. Mm. So not only when I go out there and speak, not only am I the only queer senior, many times, given the diversity of Toronto's population, many times I'm the only raisin. Right. I'm the only person. Like any actual flavor. <laughs> The raisins are the best part of the rice pudding, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and, and now that I'm differently abled, you know, I'm checking off. So that's why so many of these places want me to come and speak. Because I'm so intersectional. I check off all the boxes. Wow. So I say to them now, when I check off all your boxes, you better show me the money. Yeah, exactly. More, more boxes of money to yeah but i mean it sucks to have to like be the one advocating all the time and wanting to like just being the raisin raisins need company you know Mm -hmm. 
Um, so, I mean, I want to come back to the story about the clandestine first love because I feel like I know a lot of immigrant, brown immigrant queers and I think many of them have this clandestine love story where you've dated someone for several years and you know, the, well, the other person didn't want to tell anyone for lots of reasons and you still together, you have all kinds of intimacy and all of that, you're in love, but everything's a secret, right? Yeah. And uh, whatever, because of internalized homophobia or like real repercussions in your case, like that person was sent away uh, and that's very intense. Um, what, what helped you, how, how did you navigate that? What helped you through that, like emotionally to deal with it? And like, what advice would you give younger folks who are either still in that kind of relationship or who are holding the pain of having come out of something like that? Because it's very common from, from yeah. people I know. Well, actually, I didn't realize how common it still is. Yeah. Because I was talking to a very young uh, lesbian. And it's interesting, not too many young women are identifying as lesbian these days. There's a backlash now if you identify as a lesbian. And nobody's identifying as a dyke, as far as I know, except me. <laughs> So anyway, going back to the the secrecy of it, I met this young woman. She is 22, goes to York, yeah. is a woman of color. Yeah. And um, when I spoke at, at her class, I was doing a presentation. I said, I know for some of you, it's going to be difficult, you know, putting, because usually I ask the question, how many of you identify as queer? Mm-hmm. But I also add the disclaimer, if you don't feel comfortable putting your hand up, I'll be around afterwards, you know, come and see me after if you have any questions or you want to find out anything. Yeah. And she came to me afterwards very quietly and she asked me if she could speak to me and she said, I identify as a lesbian, but I'm afraid to say it in the classroom mm. because of the backlash. And then we met, she came to one of... Um, the youth elder uh, community chats. Right. Then we went to Gladday afterwards to have a beverage. Okay. And she was telling me that she was in a relationship with uh, another woman who lived uh, just outside of Toronto. Okay. This other woman's family had no clue that she was queer. And the, and her younger sister was also queer, and the parents are South Asian, the family South Asian. Right. So they were hiding, and the young woman who identified herself to me in the class was becoming more and more frustrated because she is out. Yeah. So I have been in relationships over the years where my... The re my main relationship that lasted almost 10 years, I was out and my partner wasn't. Mm. I was out to her family. <laughs> wow. But she wasn't. Wow. So it's, it's hard when there's a secrecy and what happened to me. And I realized when you asked me that question, how did I deal with it? I've never honestly answered that question. I'm going to answer it honestly now. Okay. When she was taken away from me, I started drinking. Wow. 
and for many of us back then, and I think still it's happening, we use drugs and alcohol yeah. to cope with to cope with that kind of stress. Yeah, it's painful. And it's it's it was very painful, and I had nobody to turn to for yeah. support. And then I realized over the course of my life. I have always used alcohol to cope with stress. I was only a social drinker. I never was at home sitting around drinking on my own. But there was a period of time when, after she was sent back to Trinidad, that I was what was called high functioning. Right. So I was able to go to work full time. But when I came home in the evening, I would drink. And then when I realized that was what I was doing, I got help and I stopped doing that. Mm. But the reason I ended up in a coma in 2007 was because of another horrific event that happened in my life in in 2000. And that was the worst thing that could have happened to me. And again, it had to do with me being out in a lesbian feminist organization and all these lovely lesbian feminists were white and something happened in the organization and they threw me under the bus and I went and I just went right back to using alcohol to cope with the stress of what I was going through. Yeah. So that's something else I talk about how we use and I'm, I mean, I'm living proof, actually living. I'm still alive. Yeah. Some of us don't survive. Mm the drugs and the alcohol yeah but you're here and you're with us and we're so grateful so that's so these are the things that keep me going yeah if if i can save one one more you know because i've been doing uh presentations at rice and there's an interdisciplinary class that happens four times a year and it's a two-week intensive uh course and the professor found out about me and I've been there six times now and every time I've been she sends me the uh, evaluations that the students write up and every six times now I've had students get in touch with me and want to do a paper on queer seniors or want me to put them in touch with resources Mm -hmm. because many of them are in hiding or those who are not hiding have decided, hearing what I have said, want to support queer seniors because they're realizing that they are queer and what is going to happen to them down the road. Yeah. You know, I am lucky that I'm still able to take care of myself given the fact that I came out of a coma and I survived brain surgery. I'm also a bionic dyke. I told you I was a Jurassic (laughs) dyke. Jurassic bionic, that's amazing. Bionic, I have I have a new brain, I have two new hips. So this is this is what keeps me going is I don't want other young queer people. My my soft spot is for queer women of color. Yeah. I don't want to see anybody else go through what I went through. Yeah. So if I can support them in any way, that's why I do what I do. And it's such a, you're such a wonderful resource to have in that moment because 
for, for queer you to see somebody out there who's showing them love by sharing the story. Because I think that's, sometimes we don't even hear our story being told by anybody, you know? So mm-hmm. when you're telling your stories, you're like, oh fuck, I, that's also me. That's also mm-hmm. what I'm experiencing and that's so powerful. But I, you know, I, the other thing that I will say is that, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm in my early thirties, uh, but you know, I have to be honest, sometimes I've had to check myself because, uh, you know, I, I think I have, I, I have some anger or I used to be kind of upset with my younger self and that uh, sometimes I'm just like, uh, I think younger folks there, I'm like, ah, they don't know anything, which is not true. Obviously that's not true, you know, and not only that, and you know, younger folks know things that even my younger self was new things, right? Like it's just that they yeah. acted in ways that, that made sense for their environment. Uh, but you know, you've lived a long life with so much experience and twists and turns, you know, you're a bionic dyke. Uh, <laughs> do, you, do you get frustrated sometimes with younger people? Or you're like, that's not the right way to do things? Oh, not, no, not like that. My frustration usually has to do with um, not treating each other with kindness. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my main frustration. Yeah. Especially when I go out, when, um, when you ask me, what do I do for self-care? Yeah. And that dancing doubles and dim sum. The 3D. So, yeah, I've had an ongoing battle with going out socially, especially where dancing is involved. Because the white um, women in the room are not kind. Yeah. And it's not only to somebody who is older, they're just not kind to women of color. Mm -hmm. And it's even more difficult when you're using a mobility device. And I don't know if you were aware, there have been three of these, I guess I would call them community forums, talking about disappearing spaces for queer women. Right. So I've been asked to speak at all three, and I have said the same thing repeatedly. Just try and be kind. How, how hard is that to do? To be kind to each other when you're in these spaces? Because it all, what it comes back to for me is that treat people the way you want to be treated. It's true. You know, and do you want to be pushed and shoved when you're out there trying to get on the dance floor, trying to get through a front door? When I went to Lavender the first time and I was meeting friends there, I don't know if you know Cecilio. I do know Cecilio. Yeah, so I was meeting Cecilio there and some other friends, and I got, before I even got into Glad Day, there was a security person standing out front. I had never seen security at Glad Day before. Right. And there was this tall black security person, and I'm, I'm using black for a reason, a person of color. And so I walk up. And the person puts their arm out and says, where are you going? I said, I'm going in there. I'm meeting friends. And you're using a cane. You really think you should be going in there? And I thought, what? What? So I said, but you're breaking the law by even saying that to me. (laughs) You don't tell somebody who's using a mobility device you cannot go in. Right. So then I get to the the door and the person who's taking the money says the same thing. Do you realize how crowded it is in here? And you're using a cane. You think that's wise? 
And Cecilia was right there. I thought Cecilia was just going to knock the person at the door over. He just came to my rescue. And so I'm standing in the doorway. You know how small that doorway is a glad day. There's somebody there taking money, telling me I can't come in. People are coming out. I'm using a cane. My cane has a light on it. I, I forgot to bring over my canes. And Cecilio had to put his arms around me and say to the people coming out, can't you see there's somebody standing here with a cane? Like, make some room. And I mean, that should have been a sign to me that this is what was happening going into Lavender. I had a chat with Michael. I had a chat with um, Aruna mm -hmm. immediately. We met afterwards and this, I got to know Sika and I got to know the woman at the door. Mm -hmm. So I made suggestions about things, how things could be done differently. I have sent Sika the uh, Bricks and Glitter Code of Conduct. Mm -hmm. And now it's moved over. But I mean, and I have heard from other women of color who are not using mobility devices mm -hmm. about the pushing and shoving that takes place at Lavender. Mm -hmm. So Lavender moved from Glad Day over to Buddy's and it's become worse. Mm. So I've only been once and that's because Aruna is a DJ. Yeah. And I saw, uh, yeah, and another woman was there the same night I was there who was using a walker, Kate Welsh. Mm. She's a, a young white woman. I know Kate. And the crowd was just, I, I was upstairs and I could see her being pushed and shoved. And for me, even to try and go to the bathroom, there was a pushing and the shoving. Right. So what would I say to, to those women out there? The same thing I said to the three community forums. Be kind. How hard is that? Do you, you think know? there's something about younger folks that, that were not thinking about kindness? Or do you think it's not about age, it's about something, it's about something else? What, what, what is stopping people from being it's, kind? It's not, ex yes, exactly. What is stopping people from being kind? That is the question. Until something happens to you, right. which affects you personally, mm -hmm. does it invention changes the life? Yeah. Yeah. Like when um, Bricks and Glitter held an event at the Gladstone, yeah. I really like the Gladstone, that space. Yeah, it's a good We space. put up the code of conduct. It was a dance party and people were actually taking pictures of the code of conduct. Yeah. Because we are asking people just to be nice, be nice, be kind, be caring, be compassionate. You know, some basic human values. It's not like you're asking people to go out of their way to, to learn something new. But for some people, it seems to be having to learn something new. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's just one of those things where people are just letting off steam and not thinking about anything aside from themselves. And that's, that, that causes a lot of, that's not fair. That's not fair to people around them. Privilege plays a huge piece yeah. in that. Yeah. Right? So it's not that they're just blowing off steam. Who, who is the, the majority of the population at, 
uh, lavender. White queer women. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, I have to say this, trans women have it really difficult in this world. Mm -hmm. And I have been the brunt of white trans women's unkindness also. Right. So I, I advocate for trans women, all trans women, because I know how difficult it is. Yeah. But when I have a white trans woman pushing me and shoving me and I'm thinking, you know, I'm out there advocating for you and, you, and I'm using a mobility device, if nothing else, the, the mobility device should give you a clue. Yeah, you're a person. There's no, there should be nothing, no other qualifier. <laughs> yeah. No, but you see, um, Omang, what, what happens is people don't realize it takes one misstep to go from being fully mobile to being differently able. You just, you're looking at your phone and you're walking along the sidewalk and you just don't look and you step off. You end up with a cane or in a wheelchair. Yeah. And I volunteer at Bridgepoint, which is a rehab, a physical rehab hospital. Uh-huh. And what was interesting is the population of younger people who have been injured has gone up. And a lot of them are from walking and using their cell phones and not paying attention and oh. just misstepping the sidewalk or being hit by a car. Wow. Or you can you can be on a bicycle and you get doored, you know. It doesn't take much to go from being fully mobile to using a cane or a walker. Yeah, we're fragile bodies, all of us. We we forget that. We have like I feel there's a sense of invincibility that nothing could happen, but it can happen. Anything Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I mean, there are so many pieces in that. I mean, tell me about your you mean and you mentioned this, you know, you, you're Trini, you love to dance, party, lime. Um, you know, over the years, you've been hosted parties. Uh, tell me about what it feels like to actually dance with, with your mobility devices. Uh, what does it feel like to be in party spaces? I mean, not, of course, there was obviously people pushing and the hard things about it. But what do you love about it? Um, I like showing off my different canes. I have one in particular. Let me just go and grab them. Yeah, show me. Oh, look at those. They look cute. This is Robin. Oh, hi, Robin. So Robin, Robin is, I got Robin in Jacksonville in Florida. Yeah. And Robin is for one of my brother's who died in 2015 because of alcohol poisoning. Wow. So all my, uh, they all have significance. This is Iris. Hi, Iris. Iris is my very fancy going out, going out cane when I want to make a statement. Oh, a statement cane. (laughs) Yeah. And this is Lily. See, Lily is flashing there. Oh, hi, Lily. It's, oh, Lily, it's, uh, is la- Lily is lavender. Nice. So Lily is my dancing cane. And I put uh, 
like the light on my cane so people can see me on the dance floor. Yeah, they need that. And this is Hugo. Hi, Hugo. So Hugo is my very first cane that I got at Bridgepoint. Mm. And it was given to me by a 106-year-old woman who was wow. one of my roommates. So back then at Bridgepoint in the old hospital, there were four of us in a room. And so this 106-year-old woman was one of my roommates. And she, when I was leaving, she was still there. And she said to me, I will never use this cane again. And you need a cane so you can have Hugo. So the reason why he's called Hugo is because of the bottom of the cane is written Hugo. Mm. So I didn't name Hugo. Hugo, Hugo was Hugo already. Had a name already, yeah. But Hugo was a huge support because I had to learn how to use a cane. And also I was in a wheelchair for five months. Okay. So that's given me a huge amount of respect for people who have to use a wheelchair on a regular basis. Because until you have to use one, you have no idea yeah. when you're using a wheelchair 24-7 and you have to get yourself in and out of it on your own. Mm, that's why. Yeah. And navigating it outside and yeah. Uh, tell me, you use the word, term differently abled. Uh, tell me why you use that. Um, because I wasn't born with a disability. Mm. And um, in the CRIP communities, as I've been told, mm -hmm. some people don't like the term differently abled. Right. But I, actually, I was told that uh, that's a term I need to be using because I acquired a disability. Okay. I wasn't born with a disability. Right. So I do have um, a lot of privilege also that way in terms of not having been born with a disability and being more mobile than other people okay. who were born with a disability. Okay. So it's always important, too, for me to acknowledge my privilege. And also, in terms, uh, I do work with Indigenous people and to acknowledge the land yep. that, we are, that we are meeting on today and that we are living on. And we have the privilege of enjoying all the benefits of Indigenous lands. Yeah, totally. I mean, I have so many questions to ask you. In terms of... Do you feel, I mean, I know you told me that you have a boyfriend, but do, what is your relationship to desirability? Do you feel desired? Oh, well, <laughs> no, I don't feel, I feel I'm desirable. Yeah. But I don't feel, I don't feel desired. Mm. And a lot of it has to do with me using a cane. So I went to my first uh, slow dance and I was using my cane. I went with a friend um, who's also Leslie and she's black and brown and we were out. It was summertime. We were nicely dressed, looking fresh, yeah. sharp, just gotten haircuts. 
Nice. And she kept getting asked to dance and nobody was asking me to dance. Mm. And I said to her, I bet it's because of the cane. And she says, no, people couldn't be that shallow. So I said, let's make a bet for money. And we made a bet for money and I hid, um, I didn't have Lily at the time. I had Hugo. Okay. And I hid Hugo and sure enough, the next song that came on, a woman came right over to me and asked me to dance. Wow. So I was, it was, um, uh, was a slow song yeah. and I can dance slow songs without my cane. So have you been to one of the slow dances? I have, I have. So, so you know, it's three fast songs, three slow songs. Right. So we, we danced the three slow songs. And then the other thing was my age. Because obviously I'm older. I looked older than the majority of the women who were there. And in terms of small talk when you're dancing, it's like, what's your name? What do you do? And I realized they were mostly students or young people who were just starting out in terms yeah. of working. Yeah. So I made the mistake of saying to one of them that I was retired. And <laughs> so this is, this is when I'm slow dancing with this first, the first woman. You're being and honest. Says, That's okay. not a mistake. Yeah, she says, re retired. I said, yeah, um, you know, I I can't work anymore. And then, so we had now danced into the third slow song. So it was all wrapping up. And then uh, the fast song came on and she, she said, do you want to dance? And I said, yes. I said, I just need to go and get my cane. And that was it. The look on her face face when I got Hugo and wow. what you use a cane and you're retired oh and then that was it yeah yeah and so that was at um, Dover Court that was Dover Court House yeah and then the next one was at Gladstone and I went with a couple of other friends and the same thing happened I hid the cane and I got asked to dance. And then when this, the fast songs came on and I got the cane out, it was, oh, you use a cane. How much money did you make? You won a bet, right? Oh, it was, it was, just, it was just the one bet <laughs> one time. <laughs> what I find interesting is that you hear women saying that gay men are so shallow. <laughs> that they're only interested in bodies and you know, the, the, how fit your body is. But we do the same things to each other. We do. No, we do. So you, you look at me and then you see me using a cane and right away it's, oh, that person isn't viable as a human being anymore simply because I'm using a cane. So I'm out there doing all of this work and I think I'm contributing to you know, the well-being of young queer people or any queer person. And I, I have not, I'm not, I'm not being asked out. 
But I mean, that's really yeah. unfair because you, we are standing on your shoulders. Like you, you have paved the way for all of us. Um, so it's well, I mean, I mean, I've, I've done. I'm not. The other people have done work. So. Yeah, yeah. But also you. Yeah, but it, so it, it really it breaks my heart that nobody's taking the time to get to know me. Mm-hmm. It's only the cane. That's that's what keeps getting in the way. Is the cane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've talked uh, very openly and generously about uh, your your alcohol, uh, your relationship to alcohol, um, and I wonder how. Ac- navigating these spaces i mean i think the queer slow dance is a sober space i don't know if it is uh but like how does it feel to navigate spaces that are not uh sober friendly like a lot of dance parties are not they're very alcohol based so that was something that that was one of the points i raised at the community forums Mm -hmm. that there are many of us who have problems with alcohol yeah it's very common and and with drugs so we need to create queer sober social spaces and i do have to say to her credit sika did have a a sober dance party right which i wasn't able to attend because i wasn't in the country but that's only been one and i think there needs to be more of those happening because there are a lot of younger people who are trying not to consume drugs or alcohol. Right. And so why not create those spaces? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like be proactive instead of waiting for something to happen, you know. And when we go out, I, I was telling Kumari, I noticed that um, at Buddies, the lavender at Buddies, there are two bars like two physical bars there. And there was a lot more, I noticed a lot more drinking was happening. Mm. And also when I went to the Gladstone, they did a pop-up lavender there, I think in uh, February. And I could see how much alcohol was being consumed. And you see people's behavior then starts to change. You know? People become more relaxed, and then there's a there's a certain level I've noticed of meanness that that raises its ugly head. People aren't like people aren't fully holding on to their wits, so I think it changes people. Yeah, for sure. How are you dealing with sobriety in this time of COVID nineteen? Is um well, I realized from coming out of a coma. Yeah. The fact that I survived a coma was a huge wake up for me. Mm. So I know if I ever have another drink, I'll die. Okay. But what I have had to start doing, because when you go out somewhere and you don't have a glass in your hand, people are constantly saying, can I get you something to drink? Yeah. And they don't ask, do you want something alcoholic or non-alcoholic? So it's just the assumption that it will be something that's alcoholic. So whenever we've had our time after time events, it's always been uh, sober. Time after time is an intergenerational dance party that you throw. Yeah, sober and dry. We had one that the first one we ever did was a fundraiser 
and it didn't work out as a fundraiser. People drank a lot mm-hmm. and it changed the whole tone of the the event. So we never had another one with alcohol. So let me ask you this, because that's, that's actually so interesting to me, that actually having a sober space opened up deeper connection. Yes. That's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, so what is a pot, like what, what in your life has being sober opened up for you? Well, how I cope, because I've had to look internally at how I'm dealing with life instead of just having alcohol to deal with stress. Right. So one of the things that's helped me through being sober, so I've been sober 14 years now, yeah. is mindfulness. Mm. So when I came out of the coma and I was back in the real world in 2008, I went to Women's Health and Women's Hands, which is a community health center. Mm-hmm. And it's very unique in that it provides services only to women of color. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a two Carlton Street, so I'm giving it a plug. So I went there and I saw a psychotherapist there for a year and she taught me the practice of mindfulness. Yeah. And that is what keeps me grounded and sober and sane. <laughs> yeah. Especially, you know, when things can go all hairy like right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, uh, I don't have a story like yours, but I also don't drink, and I think it has opened up a lot of connection with myself, and just understanding what's going on in my head a lot better than when I was drinking often. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I appreciate you sharing your story and your journey, and and thank you for actually doing. I mean, you don't just do it here; you do it often. I've seen you. St- you've talked on Pride events and stuff like that about sobriety, uh, about your alcohol journey, which I think we don't talk about enough in our community. Yeah, when I um, when I first started talking about it, about being in a coma, mm-hmm. like for, I realize now in retrospect, for the first year, I didn't say why I was in a coma. Okay. Because I was ashamed. Right. And then I realized, why am I ashamed? Nobody's paying me a salary. I have nothing to lose. Mm. And and as soon as I said the next time that I spoke publicly and I said I was in a coma because of alcohol poisoning, I had five people come up to me afterwards and get got in touch with me via phone or email to wow. say thank you for saying that. Wow. I spoke at um, the Museum of Immigration in Halifax in 2016. Mm. And a woman came up to me and it was my um, 10th year of sobriety. Mm. And a woman came up to me after I spoke in tears and she said, it's also my 10th year. And this is the first time I've heard a queer person publicly say that they had a problem using alcohol to cope with stress. Wow. Because we don't talk about it enough. We, we keep hiding it. And um, kudos to you because I've come across other young people now who are saying they're making a concerted effort to try and be sober. Yeah. Actually, I don't know if you know Ty. 
Ty Sloan is um, a performer, works at Sketch, identifies as they, them, is two-spirit and Asian. And um, they posted on Facebook that they were asking for support at social events or times when they were performing for support not to be sober. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I thought I was really brave mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to put it out there on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, because there is a, sometimes a pressure to indulge in substances or in alcohol. And, you know, you're like, that's the party mood. Why am I not in the party mood? So it's great yeah. to have people speaking up and telling their story and then find, making that space for other people also by telling the story. And yeah. we doing that. And Ty is doing that. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't lecture. It's just coming from my life experience. And that's if what makes it powerful. Yeah. If you want to chat with me, I'm available. Otherwise, whatever you choose to do, you choose to do. I can't judge yeah. anybody. And that's real. People need sometimes that's what they have and they're using what they need. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. real. That's legit. And, you know, you can have good relationships with it if that's possible for you, but not everyone can. Mm. I mean, I want to ask about the storytelling piece because I think even in this conversation, I can really tell you're a great storyteller. I feel like, uh, <laughs> no, I, I really, I really feel that. I feel like you're able to provide context and you're able to like set up, build, pay off a story. You're able to tell, narrate. Uh, and that's what makes it powerful because you're also doing that in relating your story to people so people can see what, what the possibility of the journey could be and what light in the end of the tunnel can look like. And I think you are you are a model for that for many people uh and oh, no <laughs> don't i mean i meant that as a compliment <laughs> i i didn't mean <laughs> no one's trying to know what there can be no other leslie but there can be people, that's that's true you know but there can so, be people being like oh that's possible maybe it can be possible for me too you know that's it but i want to know who taught you to tell stories how did you did were you the folks around you growing up who were very good storytellers yeah, my father was a storyteller. Mm. So once a week we would have a storytelling evening. Okay. And we went, and then each of us had to tell a story. Oh. And it had to be based on what was happening in your life and but it had to have a funny oh. twist. It had to be you know, a funny story. You learned early how to tell a story. Tell me some yeah. stories that someone one one of you you would tell either you, your father, your brothers. Oh, so my my first real story that I used to tell was about the the Julie mango. What is that? Oh, it's a the, type of mango. Yeah. It's a type of mango in Trinidad. Yeah. So the 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 rule is when you have a a mango tree leaning over into your yard. Yeah. The mangoes on that side of the tree, even though the tree's in the neighbor's yard. Yeah. The mangoes on the, the side in your yard belong to you. Mm-hmm. So I had had my eye on this really nice, red, rosy, Julie mango. Mm. And just it was looking getting... at you over there, the way you build up the mango. Like, I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just like this red, oh, I'm just like, I want the, I, my mouth is watering. I love mangoes. Um, you already made it so enticing. Okay, go on. Well, I was I was watching it every day, and you know, it was started off green, and then it was turning a little red, and then it was getting a little orange, and then it was 
getting to the stage of almost ripe. Mm. But it was quite high up on the tree and it was hanging over the roof of one of the sheds in our backyard. Mm-hmm. And you remember I told you I have three brothers. Right. So I had to figure out how to get that mango without me going up on that roof because I'm afraid of heights. So I thought, hmm, let's see. My father is at work until five o'clock. We finish school at three o'clock. And there's a ladder in the backyard. Okay. Let me see which brother I can get to go up this ladder and get the mango. Okay. But I had to use something to get him to go up the ladder to get the mango. So there was another mango next to the one I had my eye on. So I said to my brother, Ronald, you see that mango up there? Not the nice red one, the one next to it. Why don't you go pick that one? So he gets up on the ladder and he goes up on the roof. And I said, the one in front of the one that you should get is kind of ripe. Pick that one and get it out of the way. Throw it down to me first. And then the other one is yours. So next thing I know, I hear my father's whistle and I didn't realize it was five o'clock. Wow. <laughs> so my father's whistling as he's coming up the, the little walkway into the backyard. I got my mango and my brother Ronald is up on the roof. Yeah. So I moved the ladder. and my father comes up and I'm just sitting on the back step looking at my book and my father looks up and Ronald is up on the roof (laughs) my father says what are you doing up there and he says Leslie send me up to pick a mango and he looks, my father looks at me and says, you sent him up there to get a mango? And I say, what is he holding in his hands? And my father looks up and he says, what are you doing with a mango? And how did you get up there? <laughs> so I, I look at my father and then I look up at my brother and all I say is, Thank you. Bye. <laughs> so I ended up with my mango. <laughs> he's up there on the roof with a less he's right up there on the roof. <laughs> with a not as good mango. So <laughs> did you actually do this, your brother? Yes. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I used to get them to do things for me all the time. <laughs> I never got into trouble. <laughs> So I wanted to show you some of my buttons. Yes, yes. Please tell me about your buttons. Brown Trinidike. For our listeners, Leslie has an amazing emoji game. They're very hip and they have great buttons. Queer Dyke. Okay. So these are my identities. This one says Callaloo Dyke. Tell me about Callaloo. Ah, I was hoping you would ask. So, callaloo is one of our national dishes in Trinidad. Right. So, it's made from the callaloo bush, not to be confused with Jamaican callaloo. No, it's just a Trinidad. 
Trini Callaloo is the best. So it's, it's a dish made with many ingredients. Right. So anything with many ingredients is called a Callaloo. Okay. So because of my very specific racial mixture, mm-hmm. I am called a Callaloo. Okay. So I'm a Callaloo dyke. You're a Trini Callaloo dyke. So I'm a, a Trini Callaloo. Not a Jamaican Callaloo dyke. No. <laughs> no. Not not to be confused. Okay, I have uh, two more. So when people ask me to identify gender mysterious. Oh, I love that. And the reason why I say that is because people decide on my gender for me. Right. One of the things, especially when I'm going into the bathroom. So I've been physically assaulted many times going into the women's washroom. I have great sympathy for trans women, especially for older trans women Mm -hmm. who have to try and access washrooms Mm -hmm. on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Because I'm being read as trans. So Mm -hmm. once you're being read as trans and you're older and you're trying to go into a women's washroom, it's a living hell. And the other thing along that same line is being called Sir. That's another reason why I say I'm gender mysterious. So one of the positives in terms of the coronavirus and staying home is that I'm not being called Sir at least three or four times a day. Less harassment, yeah. Well, a friend of mine pointed out to me that I have to keep coming out as a woman every time somebody calls me Sue. And I had never thought about it like that before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what I used to do was get really angry and upset. Mm -hmm. And I would say, I'm not a man, I'm a woman. And they would, the, the person who had called me Sue would start saying, Sorry, sorry, sorry. Can we just move along? And then last year, when somebody, and I I sat and I thought about it, and I thought this anger is getting me nowhere, and it's not educating the person who's calling me sir. Right. So I decided one day, and it's always when I'm going to buy something, Mm. so I'm in line, and the person at the cash register says, Yes, sir, what would you like? And I said, it's not, sir. Can we turn this into a teaching moment? Well, that just stops right there. The person's face was like, what do you mean? You know, they didn't say that. So now there's somebody in line behind me. Well, you take your time. Yeah, and the person says, oh, there's somebody behind you. I said, yes, but we're not done. We're turning this into a teaching moment. You just call me sir. So what would be helpful, given that the world is now full of people of all different genders and you are serving the public, is all you need to say say is, how may I help you? You don't need to say sir or ma'am. What I have been getting, though, a lot is, well, it's a sign of respect to say sir or ma'am. I said, it could be disrespect now to say sir or ma'am. So just to keep it simple, how may I help you? I wrote at Shoppers in one day, I was called sir three times. 
by three different staff people. So I wrote a letter to the pharmacist who owns the shoppers that I go to. And I and in so I, I have written letters to shoppers, Metro, Sobies, and Loblaws. And I offer my services in terms of training. Yeah. Fair enough. You know, gender inclusion, the use of language. Nobody has taken me up on my offer. Right. But the pharmacists at shoppers got in touch with me. And then when I went in to get a prescription, he spoke to me personally and he said, Thank you for pointing that out to me. I brought it up at a staff meeting and I've told my staff from now on to stop using sir or ma'am and just say, how may I help you? Well, I mean, there's some, first of all, if shoppers, if you're listening, hire Leslie to do training. <laughs> you need Leslie. But also, I also think it's just like, again, this is something that I'm always awed by when I'm listening to you. It's like, you just, you don't stop. You don't just like, okay, I'm just going to take it. <laughs> They're just like, I'm going to write a letter to all of you and you're going to hear and you're going to learn from what you just did. And I just think that is something that not everyone does. And I think that is something that makes, I, I just so appreciate the fire that you're holding and this like desire to be like, no, I'm not going to accept this. I'm going to change it. And I just think that's so powerful for all of us too. And you're making it better for me when I go into a shopper. So I really, I, I can't, I can't thank you enough for not steps not sitting down not taking it well now that you put it that way thank you now what we see now that i'm looking at you i could see that you would be getting sued <laughs> <laughs> i do get sensors i just think i i, I have what i do is i have headphones and i actually I, because of things like that you don't want to deal with other people's opinions all the time i actually yeah. Sometimes that's my protective measure. But when I'm hearing you, I'm just like, yeah, why don't I actually tell them back? I'm thinking about, as I, as, I, as I listen to you talk, I'm like, I actually don't do that all the time. I'm just like, oh my God, I just can't deal with this nonsense right now. I'll just move forward. It's, I have something else to be doing. Yeah. And, and I appreciate that you actually do the opposite, which is you're like, no, we're going we're gonna to focus on this moment and we're going to change it and we're going to transform it. Or you're going to learn whether you want to learn or not, you're going to learn. This is not okay. Well, you see, that. part of it too is it makes them squirm. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't want that? A little yeah. squirming. A little squirming. <laughs> so here's, here's another button. Yeah, show me. Pride is good for your health. So I, I have this poster in my front window. Yeah. And my next door neighbor, who is lesbophobic as hell, came and said to me do you know that by putting that up there it's going to bring down the value not only of your house but of mine well, good. and do you have to put up all your rainbow paraphernalia yes don't you think you're too old to be out there shouting it out of the rooftops <laughs> so here i am i said you know i've been living here 35 years why do you think you have the right to come and tell me how to live my life? Am I doing anything to harm you, to hurt you in any way? Maybe, maybe what she wants is she wants rainbow flags in her house and she's just jealous. <laughs> so. so you see, even where I live, I have to put up with crap. Yeah, that's fucking So this is another one. Out of the closet. 
So this is my new business out of the closet. Okay, hire Leslie people out of the closet. Yes. And before I show you my last one, I want to show you this. Okay. I don't know if you'll see it backwards. Dyke, I can see it. My dyke ring. And here is my last one. Single and ready to mingle. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Get, form a line and go. <laughs> Go get Leslie. So you have to you have to give out my email uh, address. Okay. If people want to get in touch with me to chat. You want to share it now? T r i n i c a r i b l m l k at rogers dot com. Okay. Well, folks, listen to that. <laughs> email Leslie with your with your pickup lines and uh oh you can find me on hey did you look at my video my video uh i looked at many videos of yours so which one are you talking about the well, one about your shirts yes the one about the tell silky, me, but tell silky, our audience my silky blue frog shorts mm -hmm. were an breaker they opened bedroom doors <laughs> i bet they did i bet they, they did they got brown legs caressed and stroked <laughs> hot 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 yeah. <laughs> tell us more tell us more oh, no we'd have to leave it at that if i tell you everything there'd be nothing left to the imagination <laughs> <laughs> uh i'm sure lots of people are imagining a lot right now so gonna, <laughs> we're gonna hold a moment for that uh but you're gonna want to get to know this week. <laughs> And her shorts. So I my silky, silky blue. Okay, so I want everybody to go and Google Leslie L E Z L I E Maria Lee Cam L E E K A M, and you'll see my video, my silky blue frog shorts. And you want and then tell me what you think. And then you have Leslie's email address. So. There, Leslie has set up everything for anyone who wants to pick up Leslie. So don't <laughs> even say that they haven't offered you everything. They have given you more than enough. So, so now, it's, also, now it's up to our, 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 our listeners to take it and run. Okay, but I also want to talk about bricks and glitter. Okay, tell me, tell me, what do you want? What's up with it's the big alternative to pride? Yeah, because you know, when you put that button up about like pride saves lives, and I was like, it's true. But it's also a lot. Pride is a lot. Pride nowadays yeah. is, is kind of, as you were saying, it's, it doesn't feel like a community festival, but Bricks and Glitter is. Bricks and Glitter definitely is. Yes. And so I had heard about Bricks and Glitter, right? but I never attended any events in the first year. And then I thought, you know, I have to put my money where my mouth is. Mm -hmm. So I got in touch with Kumari and I said, I want to help. And I'm on the care team along with Kumari, Natty, Gavrel, and Yami. Right. The best bunch of people I have ever worked with. I've done a lot of organizing work in the city, mm -hmm. but working with this group of people the kindness and the caring is what stands out for me the most. Yeah. 
And that's the reason why I like bricks and glitter because the underlying foundation of it is community and taking care of each other and being kind and caring and compassionate yep. and respectful. So given the current circumstances, I guess we have to put bricks and glitter on hold because so many other big gatherings now have been put on hold. Yeah, we can't do something in person, yeah. Yeah, so we have to figure out other ways of keeping in touch. Um, in terms of the Youth Elders Project, we're doing that online now. But if people want to get in touch about the Youth Elders Project, they can contact me. And are the, are the events archived? Can people see it on a website later if they can't, be, if they can't attend? Actually, what's um, on the website now are three podcasts. Okay, right, yeah. awesome. Yeah, so Youth Elders Project is a project that you co-created. Uh, is is a project that's kind of connecting uh queer youth and queer elders which is so powerful and magical yeah. uh and i think it's so especially from like a youth perspective i think many youth have either difficult relationships with elders or don't have any relationships you know especially queer mm -hmm. youth yeah. so it's so powerful to have uh you know elder elder community or elder people who can who they don't have to hide from who they can be themselves around and who they can mm -hmm. you know share that community with and you are uh, you know, in so many ways, creating a beautiful community, and that is one of the ways in which you are doing it. And uh, and so people can look it up, look up the website, and uh, listen to the podcast that you've created as part of the program. Yes, right? please do. Yeah. yeah. What have you learned? What have you learned from doing this project? That we need to have more conversations, definitely. And one of the the interesting things, the first one we did online was. Um, April the 14th, what's today? Yeah. No, April the 4th. And we had um, somebody from London, somebody from Guelph, and somebody from Niagara Falls. Wow. So because it was online, more it was more, more accessible. Yeah. Do you think yeah. elder, elders have, I mean, as we talk about isolation, I think elders also maybe don't have the community with youth right? Yes. Yeah. And also a distance that hopefully you're helping bridge and that's really important. Well, there, there are now a lot more queer seniors uh, programming happening. So there's Dorothy's Place. Yeah. There's Sunshine Centers, the 519 and Sprint. So those are four places where there's queer seniors programming. But what, as I said at the beginning of the conversation, what I would like to see happening coming out of the other side of the virus is places like Planned Parenthood, where there's all the youth programming, places like Egal, Sketch, Soy, Supporting Our Youth, all of those places joining up with places like Dorothy's Place and Sprint, and Sunshine Centers, and the 519. Um, like doing joint programming together. So you, you have queer seniors and queer youth face to face. What have you learned from youth, queer youth? Hope mm. and resilience. Mm. Because I look at queer youth now with so much respect for what all of what you are going through. Because I'm talking to yeah. two of you right now. 
And what, what you're experiencing in life right now, I didn't have to experience. I didn't have a lot of the hardships that you're having to go through right now. So that I have great respect for that. And also the openness and the determination. I don't know, at, at, when I was wrapping up my years of working, I was working three jobs for two years and I could barely handle it. Mm. And now you people do that, you know, as a matter of your daily way of being in the world. I don't think I know of any core, one queer youth who's doing one job. All my queer young friends are doing at least two jobs. And it's stressful trying to juggle you know, two and three jobs at a time. Yeah, it's definitely something that many folks have to do, and it's it's it takes a toll. Yeah, mm -hmm. it takes. But one thing that I that's um, sort of breaking my heart a little bit, and it came up in some of our podcast recordings, is some of the queer youth feel that they don't have stability in relationships. Right because everything is so fast. It's like you're online or you're on a device. You don't have those face-to-face -face conversations anymore. You don't have that continuity in terms of friendships. And um, I know two of the queer youth in particular pointed out that when you're in a relationship with your friends and something comes up that's negative, you don't have the skills to try and work your way through it so sometimes you sacrifice that friend and you move on to somebody else right because you don't have the skills to work out what does a friendship mean mm -hmm. because everything is just happening so quickly in your lives mm -hmm. like you don't take that time or you don't know how to make the time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean there is like a pace to life now that feels very fast and it doesn't mm -hmm. feel like what do you think what would you tell people who want to know how to keep connections alive what do you know that we can learn uh, two things okay. slow down Oof. slow down yeah because the device isn't everything uh -huh. and also try and make the effort to do things face to face uh -huh. like in person not just this zoom i know we're doing a lot more zoom now. And WhatsApp now, but make a concerted effort when this is done because my friends, my younger friends, love me when I say, Meet me at Tasty's. So, Tasty's is one of my go to Trini restaurants. Actually, it's my only go to Trini restaurant. Right. So, now I've started having meetings at Tasty's. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Like, let's meet face to face. That sounds like a delicious place to meet. Yeah. It is. Yeah. But so to meet actually in person. Right. Because we can meet face to face without meeting in person. So once this is over, let's do some more in person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, Kumari, you know that when the care team meets in person, it's a lot different than when we talk on the phone. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I'll say even these podcast recordings are different. Because uh, we used to only do them in person, but now we have to do them face uh, over over this, and it's 
you, you don't, I, I, I can hear you, I can feel energy exchange, but it's not the same. I would love yeah. to actually do it in person and we could feel the energy between us. And you could feed me. I would feed you. <laughs> because I, I did, I did uh, a podcast recording for a Luna. Do you know a Luna? The theater? Yeah, with Monica and um, I, uh, what's the other person's name? Camila. Camila. Okay. So they fed me these lovely empanadas. Well, you know what? We can still feed you. I'll find a way to get food to you. Don't worry. <laughs> You'll receive some food from me. Uh, no, 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 we're not. You don't have to get it to me now. I'm going. I'm going to when this is over. Yeah. We have to meet at Tasties. Okay. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. I love doubles. So just like you. So how, so how do you know about doubles? How do I know about doubles? I live in Toronto. I have to, like, there's shitty food everywhere. There's, like, Caribbean food any, everywhere. I love doubles, yeah. I, 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 also, I also know many Caribbean folks. and uh, Okay. You know. You know, uh, you know Trinis, because doubles is a Trini I know Trinis. I know Trinis. Doubles, I doubles is only Trini. Doubles is nowhere else. Fair enough. Yes. As every Trini will have always tell you. Yes. <laughs> So my name, so when I identify, yeah, I say, first of all, I'm a world majority person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I want all queer people of color and all people of color to know we are not visible minorities. We're not. So visible minority was a term that the federal government came up with in the 80s to keep us in our place. In 1991, the yeah. world, the world, 1991, the world census proved that the majority of people in the world in 91 were people of color. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So we came up with world majority to identify ourselves. And it was the first time in pride in Toronto that there were dykes and lesbians of color. Mm. And I was one of a bunch of women, world majority queer women who made that happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you hear the term visible minority, please say that's a no-no. Your world, I'm talking to two world majority people. Yeah. I mean, I also, grew up, I also grew up in areas where uh, I didn't, I'm not uh, from Toronto. I grew up, I mean, also Toronto is majority people of color, but uh, I grew up in areas where I was the norm, <laughs> you know, it was not, I grew up in India and I grew up in Abu Dhabi, and I, I mean, Abu Dhabi. Oh, so you, you're from India. I'm from India, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I think I realized that I was brown when I came here, before that I didn't know that I was brown. Um, yeah, but that's interesting though, because everybody in India is brown. I mean, you know, you, I had lots of other insecurities, but it was not about race. Like, I, there were other things, you know, when you're like a queer person who's gender non-conforming and all these things, you know, you, you go through things. Uh, but it was not because of racial things. In fact, I could say I had privilege. Uh, yeah. I mean, and not that I don't have here, but it's, it's different. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely the racial dynamics change from place to place. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so when I, when I do my presentations and my workshops, it's really important for me to say all of my identities. Mm 
Mm. Why? Because, uh, because I am not um, a mono person in the world. You know, all of my different identities make me who I am. So I'm world majority. I'm a Trini, yeah. which is an, it's a nationality and a culture. Mm. I'm Carib, which are the indigenous peoples of the islands. Mm -hmm. I'm Indo, which are, I come from indentured laborers. I'm Chinese. I'm Kalaloo. I'm queer. And I'm a dyke. And now I'm differently abled and a senior. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So each one, so I'm I'm an intersectional melting pot. <laughs> yeah. So it's really that's why it's important. So when when that when I read that article, coming back to the beginning of the conversation, and the, and the woman put down gay woman, and I was wearing my dyke ring that day, and I showed she gave her, my her everything dyke. she needed, and she couldn't see it. You know, but no, but the thing is, in her brain, though, Omang, in her brain, yeah. she did not want to put down queer dyke. She was because it, it, it wasn't socially acceptable in her brain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But even within our own communities, we do the same thing. I did a, a poster for a gal. And they asked me, how did I identify? And I said, dyke. I've always been a dyke. Before the, the poster went to print, a gal called me up and said, do you mind if we put lesbian instead of dyke? Dyke is such a harsh word. It might put people off. I said, this is a gal, a national queer trust. We should do another podcast on Egal and the stories of queer you know? color at Egal. I mean No, but but we're doing it uh, we're doing it internally to ourselves. And I said the, this was the first time I went and I spoke to my friends and they said take it to Facebook. Mm -hmm. And I have a dyke t-shirt and I put on my dyke t-shirt and I said Egal wants me to be a lesbian. I am a dyke. I did that on a Saturday. On a Saturday afternoon, I did it wearing my dyke t-shirt. Monday morning, I got a phone call. Why did you go to Facebook? We could have talked about it. I said we did talk about it. <laughs> you, you, you didn't. You wanted me to identify as lesbian. So now my poster says dyke. <laughs> <laughs> you made it happen you made it happen but i also before we end i want to show you my pajamas i said i would wear pajamas yeah please show us all my podcast viewers oh that's like a, that's so cute that's a dancing a hippopotamus. oh my god i mean my podcast viewers are going to be so jealous because they don't get to see and this where is the wording this is hot stuff y'all it's like uh, a pink, the pink dancing hippopotamus what does it say it says corrupt dancing there's, what does that mean? No dancing. Corrupt. corrupt. corrupt dancing. <laughs> dancing that makes you corrupt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure when people see Leslie dancing, they have corrupt thoughts. So, um, so I wish. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I I now wear pajamas for day wear oh, when I wow. when I when I go to my. Um, business meetings and my government meetings and when I do I, my presentations. Oh, 
Oh. They're very fancy. See they silk. They're very silky and soft. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Reminding me of those blue shorts. So. Yes. There you go. <laughs> um, okay. Before we go, I do want to ask you, what do you, Leslie, you want to receive? How can the community take care of you? Um, how can the community take care of me? Well, it comes down to kindness. Mm-hmm kindness and caring and understanding and also to be mindful of those of us who are younger that one day you will be here if you're lucky Mm -hmm. and let's use although it's really bad and sad and you know what's happening to seniors but one day if we're lucky we're all going to be queer seniors those of us who are younger out there and how are we going to take care of each other mm-hmm. let's start practicing kindness in a more meaningful way let's hope that this coronavirus even though we have to be six feet apart now let's hope it brings us together with more kindness and caring and understanding mm-hmm. and compassion and what specifically for you, aside from doubles and admiring your shorts, like, can you tell me what I, what we can do for you? Oh, you mean like, very specifically, specifically, well, I can get doubles anytime. I love them. But some. it's not the same if I bring you doubles, you know, uh? it's not the same. You can get doubles anytime, but if I bring you doubles, there's something special. No. Yes. If you bring me doubles, it means you've gone out of your way to go and find them. Yeah. So, so what what do you like? What you can what you can do for me is the two of you can go with me out to Tasties when this is over. Okay. Well, it's a date. I'm ready. Yes. I'm ready. Um, and <laughs> okay. On the we have, we have I I love this conversation. I love talking to you. I feel like I could talk for a really long time, but the podcast has to come to an end at some point. <laughs> and uh, I really really want to thank you for your energy, your kindness, your generosity, your beaming, your work, your life's work. Um, you're making, oh, and those sexy glasses that you just put on. Yes, I wanted uh, you to see my glasses. Do I you mean, make sure you listeners, you're going to want to get with Leslie so you can see all the fancy stuff <laughs> Leslie has. So I don't even, I can't even do this justice right now. But I'm just going to say thank you for being a possibility model, for being out there, for uh, for just your 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 infectious laugh for all of it. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. I'm very humbled and privileged and honored that you asked me to be part of your podcast. We're so happy that you say yes. And, uh, and yeah. so nice to see you face to face. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad we could, I mean, Leslie did a special two hour seminar last night. I was going to say thanks to the two of you. I now know how to use zoom also your friend who did your who did the workshop and thanks to julie thais who's a very good teacher but the thing is i don't know how to get you on zoom i can only go to the email and click on the link it works you know let's not even complain it works <laughs> you're here <laughs> you're here and i'm queer <laughs> If we haven't established that by this point, I don't know what this podcast is doing. So I'm um, a queer dyke. Just remember that. Just remember, <laughs> queer Kalu dyke. 
Brown Dyke, yeah. Brown Dyke, here we go. Uh, thank you so much, Leslie. So, so appreciate you. Thank you, thank you. That was Leslie Lee Kim. I want to once again thank Leslie for her time, her offerings, and her life's work. We all benefit from it every day. This was our last interview episode for this season. Oh, what a journey it has been. Uh, we will release uh, a reflection episode next week, so to pull back the curtain a little bit, and um, you'll hear our team talk about uh, the process and much more. So do listen in for that next week. The music in this episode is by the incredible Toronto bands Pantayo and Lal. You can find both Lal and Pantayo albums on Bandcamp. You can follow us on Instagram at Possibilities Podcast. Uh, you can also support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash possibilities podcast. We are an independent podcast and your support at whatever level is possible for you would be hugely impactful for us. Also, at Leslie's suggestion, a portion of our Patreon earnings will go to Unit 2, which is a radical arts and community space dedicated to building community and building bridges here in Toronto, led by the band Lal, uh, whose music is in our show. This episode was edited by Mari. And it was produced by Kumari Giles. I am your host, Omang Antirk Sagar. Thank you so much for listening. I am really grateful for your time. Until next week.